We're going to be reading from the last part of chapter 7 of the book of Nehemiah in the first six verses of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. The last verse of chapter 7 of Nehemiah and the first six of chapter 8. If you would stand as we read this scripture, please. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel in their cities, now the people gathered together as the one man <clears throat> in the square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it an open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for this purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, at his left hand, Padiah, Michelle, Melchijah, Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshelam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he had opened it, and all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Worship the Lord with our faces to the ground. Maybe seat, please. Over the last month or so, we've spent a lot of time talking about building things. And we focused on the rebuilding of things. And we have emphasized in the rebuilding of those things, both things that are physical and also things that are not physical. If you have been with us the last month, we have emphasized these things, and we've talked about Zerubbabel and the temple. We've talked about Ezra and the Torah, or the law of God, the law of Moses, and rebuilding hearts. And we've also emphasized together Nehemiah and this wall. I don't know if I've done the best job over the last month or so, but emphasizing that these things were completed. They were finished. In Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple was completed and the people rejoiced. Two weeks ago, we said that Ezra, when Ezra found out that the people were intermarrying among the pagan people, that Ezra had his moment and he pulled out his hair and he ripped his clothes and he sat down and he prayed. And when he did, that had an effect on the people because then they came to him and they said that they would change. And so it was with Nehemiah. That, that though there was opposition, there was, there was Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and at one point they had to work with one hand and they had to fight off people with the other hand, but though there was opposition and though it was hard work, the people had a mind to work. And when the people had a mind to work and they put their mind to work, we read in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse number 15 that the wall was finished in a stunning 52 days. And the people rejoiced. The people rejoice. In fact, the rest of Nehemiah, until you get to chapter 13, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we know that Nehemiah leaves and he goes to Persia and he goes 
comes back again to Jerusalem and he finds out that the people have fallen away again. But between that time of the wall being finished and chapter 13, we see that there are several things that the people do and that they celebrate. And I hope that you have your Bible open there to Nehemiah because we're going to examine a few of those things together this morning. There are a few lessons that we can learn before we get into the main part of our lesson. And I hope that you'll follow along as we look at those different things. Number one, God's work always has an effect on people. God's work always has an effect on people. I mentioned this in my class on Wednesday night, if you're here in the auditorium, but we see this throughout the Old Testament, especially as you go backwards from this particular point. Several times it comes up that people see the hand of God at work and they react, sometimes negatively and also sometimes positively. Maybe the biggest grouping of this kind of action is found in the book of Joshua. In particular, Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 10, we see where Rahab hides the two spies. And as you look there, you see that Rahab says, For we have heard how the Lord, and she goes on from there. She fills in in the next few verses about the things that they have heard that the Lord had done. And then in verse number 11, she makes a very strong statement because she says the idea that their hearts had melted when they heard the things that God had done. Their hearts melted. And she goes on to make a good confession of sort, not the same good confession that we make in the name of Jesus, but she makes a good confession when she said, we have seen the things that the Lord has done, and we are afraid because of the Lord your God, because he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so it is here as well in Nehemiah that once the wall is finished, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse number 16 tells us that their enemies heard and the nations saw and they were disheartened. Why was it that they were disheartened? Well, the Bible says because they perceived that this work was done by our God. See, God's work always has an effect on people. It can be negative and it can be positive, but it has an effect on people when they see these things. In fact, I'm convinced that even today, that even today, we have unbelievers. The Bible calls them infidels, but we have people who, who don't believe. We also have people that we might label as, as heathens. We might say that they're aware that there is a God, but they choose to ignore Him. They choose to not read His Word and follow what He says. And so even these heathens, even this group of people, I would say that even today, when they see something good that happens, especially to the people of God, they are prone sometimes to think to themselves, maybe this is God at work. Maybe this is the hand of God. And maybe you reconsider their position and their relationship with God. You see, God's work always has an effect on people. And we see that here in this moment when everyone realizes, everyone around them realizes what has been done and they are disheartened because they perceived it's God. God has done this. Number two, we should celebrate success. We see that in the early of Nehemiah here, or the latter part, I guess I should say, but, but we realize that we should stop sometimes and we should celebrate success. We don't do that enough sometimes, but I think it's beneficial that we consider that. In Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verses 13 through about verse 18, after there is the reading of the Word of God, we see that the people decide, based on that reading, that they need to start celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles again. It's also called the Feast of Booths. 
And so what they do here is they take time to commemorate their time of wandering in the wilderness by celebrating this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember that when they were in the wilderness, they had no permanent dwelling? There was no temple, no set structure, but they lived in tents. They, there was the tabernacle instead of the temple. And so they build these booths once a year, or they build these booths during this feast so that they can commemorate this time and remember when they wandered in the wilderness. In chapter 9, we see that the people confess their sins to God, verse number 2. But then notice in verse number 3, and you might want to watch yourself because this is going to be a theme today. You may need to brace yourselves. But notice in verse number 3 where they read from the law of the Lord for three hours. Question, what's the fastest way for a preacher to get in hot water today, right? Read for three hours. But notice, they don't stop with three hours. Keep looking. They go three more hours and they confess their sins. So it is in the rest of chapter 9 that they go through some Old Testament history and they talk about the sins of the people. Chapter 10 opens and we see a listing of people who are going to sign this covenant. But then picking up in about verse number 28, we see what that covenant is and what it includes. And then in chapter 12... There's the dedication of the wall. And it's quite a celebration. It's quite a dedication. We see beginning in about verse number 27 that there is gladness and thanksgiving. There is singing and there are cymbals and there are string instruments and there are harps. There's not just one, but there are two thanksgiving choirs and the leaders are involved. There are sacrifices and there are, there's rejoicing so much Oh, that verse number 43 tells us that this, this celebration was so large that it could be heard afar off. People could hear what they were celebrating. And so all of these things are great. And they're fine, and the people take time, and they stop, and they celebrate. But that's not, we skipped over one main part. And our focus this morning is going to come from what was just read for us just a few moments ago in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I hope that you'll turn there so that we can examine this text together. And I want to say that I appreciate your participation this morning. It's hard to recreate exactly what was going on in that moment, in that time. And I appreciate Keith reading for us. And I appreciate you participating by standing for the reading of the Word of God. I know that's not common for us to do that. But I think that it would be encouraging for us to try our best to think for just a moment about what takes place here in Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, the question could be asked, what is it that we need most in our country today? What is it that we need most in our congregations of people? And we sang it just a few moments ago. We sing it sometimes together. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Revive us again. Some people say that what we need is a good, old-fashioned, God-fearing, Bible-believing revival. Some of you have been keeping up with the news and you're aware that over the last few weeks, about four and a half hours north of here in central Kentucky, there's been a, a small university called Asbury University where there's been a revival of sorts going on and it's captured the attention of the nation and some people have been encouraged by that. But maybe that's what we need is a revival. And when we look here in Nehemiah chapter 8, that's exactly what the people experience. We see that they have been in captivity. We see that they have now come back from captivity to Jerusalem, and several years have passed, and yet they still stand in need of a revival. What I'd like to suggest for you this morning is that there is a recipe here. 
There is a recipe for revival that we can learn from and maybe, just maybe, we can put it to practice in our lives today. Maybe, just maybe, we as a congregation here can take what we read and use this recipe for a revival even in the year 2023. There are three words that are going to be included here. They're all going to begin with the letter R. And let's get into our text for this morning. First of all, if we're going to have a revival this, this morning in our lives, would suggest that we need a reading of God's Word. We need a reading of God's your Bible and notice in Nehemiah chapter 8 and in verse number 5. And Ezra opened the book of and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it. I want to make a statement and you can decide if you agree with it or not, but when God's people are together the book needs to be opened. When God's people are together, the book needs to be opened. Wouldn't you agree with that? When, when you look at the text here, notice as well in verse number 3 exactly how long the preacher read. We're not where we were just a few moments ago, but notice it says, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Now, if you know your Jewish, Jewish time, morning, would have been about 6 o'clock in the morning, and midday would be about noon. So question again, how long do you think I would last if I decided to get up here and read from 6 in the morning until midday? But can you imagine? Can you imagine if I had come in today and opened the doors and walked right up here to the pulpit and decided to just start reading the Word of God? And I read and I read and 9.15 came along. And there are some people who start to wander in and they, they wonder, what's he doing up there? Why is he... Why is he just reading the word? And then 10.30 comes along and it's time for worship to begin and I'm still reading. 11 o'clock rolls along and we've not sung one song. We've not prayed one prayer. We've not partaken of the Lord's Supper together as we've already done today. And I'm still reading. What do you think people would think about that? Well, it reminds me of a story that I heard once about a young boy who got invited to the Church of Christ for the first time. And he was invited by one of his little friends. And so they go together and the little visitor sits down with his friend and the service starts. The song leader gets up. And the song leader says, we're going to sing number 532. And so the little visitor leans over to his friend and he says, what does that mean? The little boy said, well, he's the song leader. He's picked out these songs for us to sing today. We're going to sing praises to God. And, and that's, that's what that means. And the visitor seems satisfied with that answer. So he kind of sits back and leans back in the pew again. The service goes on a little bit further, and a man gets up, and he's got a little packet, and the little visitor leans over to the boy, and he says, what does that mean? And the boy says, well, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. You see, there's some bread there, and it represents the body of Jesus, and there's some juice or some fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Jesus, and we remember Jesus' death each week as we partake of these things. And the visitor seems satisfied with that answer, so he sits back in the pew again. A little bit later in the service, the preacher gets up. And as some preachers do, he leans and he takes off his watch and he sits it up on the pulpit. The little visitor leans over and says, what does that mean? And the boy said, absolutely nothing. And he's not paying attention, not a thing is what that means. But think about it. Here, time does not matter to the people. They're not checking their watch. They're not pulling out their phone. They're not looking at the clock. They're not fidgeting in their seat. They're not getting up and leaving early. Time does not matter. For they are listening to the word of God being read in their midst. But not only that, notice in verse number 8 that there is the explaining of God's word. It says in verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they 
give us the sense and help them to understand the reading. So not only is there the reading of the Word of God, but there's also the explaining. Now, scholars might differ on whether or not this is talking about translation or interpretation or commentary, but it doesn't really matter. You know, we've emphasized a lot here about how the Lord's Supper should be one of the main things that we do each week, and I agree with that. Our song service is important as we praise God and we sing and teach and admonish one another, and I agree with that. But it also seems as if it's important that someone stand up and explain, not only read from, but explain the Word of God. We need a revival in this country. If we think we might could use a revival in this congregation, can I suggest to you this morning that it might just begin with the reading of the Word of God. But number two, we realize that we need to have respect for God's name. We need to have respect name of God as part of our revival. You know, we spend lots of time hand-wringing and lamenting and even arguing about what exactly is wrong in our world today. What, what's wrong with people? How is it that the world is so sinful and they get it so backwards? And we blame politicians and we blame other events and we go round and round thinking about what exactly the problem is, again, not only in our country, but just what's wrong with people today. Friends, can I suggest to you that I think it's pretty simple? We've lost respect for the name of God. Go out in public. Turn on your television. Listen to popular music. Go to a ball game. Go to a youth ball game. Listen to our young people. Hopefully not exactly our young people here today but listen to young people speak I remember about a year ago we were playing spring baseball and we were at the field waiting for Caden's game to start and Campbell and I were throwing the baseball in the outfield of a, a neighboring area and there were some boys who were playing they were just out of my earshot but they weren't outside of Hannah's earshot and we sat there for a little while and she got to where she just couldn't take it anymore their language turned so vile and nasty and awful that she finally got up and said something to them hey guys can you, can you watch your language? Can you tone it down? Go out in public. Watch TV. Listen to music. And you'll hear it over and over again from people. Oh, my. And they take his name just like they're calling Billy's name, Susie's name. We have lost a respect for the name of God. And when we do that, we see things start to crumble around us. We see people who live however they want to live. And it's a very, very sad state. Can I suggest to you from the text this morning three things that we see that the people do here as opposed to losing the respect from the name of God. First of all, we notice in verse number three that they are listening. The Bible says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were listening. They weren't playing with the babies. They weren't texting on their phone. They weren't talking to one another. They were listening. Now, before you get upset and say, well, preacher, I think you're talking about me because I've got kids or a baby and I, I've, I've checked my phone once before during service because I thought I got a message. I, I'm not, right? The attitude of the people here was of listening. I like to also kind of imagine as well that there were probably a few unruly babies and kids in this audience. There were probably a few stressed out parents who were trying to figure out how to keep their kids quiet while this man is reading the word of the Lord. I understand, and I know that it happens, but the attitude of the people was one of not being disinterested and not looking at every other distraction and thing around them. Their 
characteristics, their attitude was in listening to the Word of God. And we need to be attentive when the Word of God is read. Number two here, we see in verse number five that they were standing. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Again, I appreciate your participation just a few moments ago. I know it's uncommon for us to do that. But the people stood up. Question, when a judge enters the courtroom, what is it that people do out of respect for that office? When the president enters a room, what is it that people do? And I know before you say, Joel, I don't like the president, I understand. But what do most people do out of respect for the office? And let me ask you this then, okay? What happens when a bride enters the room or the area? And what should happen when the holy God of heaven is in our midst? The whole congregation, the bride of Christ should be standing. And if not standing physically, which we don't do the whole time, but at least they should be standing, we should be standing in our hearts. That is the respect that we should hold for the name of God. But not only were they listening and standing, but we see also they were bowing their heads. In verse number 6, at the very end, it says, And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord God, the Lord with their faces to the ground. That is what they were doing. Out of respect, their heads were bowed. This should be our attitude as we come to worship God. The psalmist say, says it in Psalm 95 and verse number 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, is that our attitude? Or are you like some of those people who say, well, why do I have to bow my head? Why is it that I have to close my eyes? That's ridiculous. I'll do what I want to do. And you begin to see the attitude that is a problem with that. I know it's not conducive, not only due to the pews in here, but to many of our health and our knees that we can't bow the entire time. In the same way, that it would be very hard for us to stand the entire time. But as I said a moment ago, it's not just about physically doing it, although that can be important. It's about our hearts. And our attitude. Are we standing before the Lord in respect for His name? Are we bowing down before the Lord in respect for His name? Or are we simply doing whatever it is that we want to do? If we're talking about a revival, if we're looking for the recipe for revival, can I suggest to you this morning that we need to be reading the Word of God, especially as God's people. But number two, we need to show respect for the name of God. Third thing that we might mention this morning is that we need to have a response from God's people. <clears throat> there needs to be a response from God's people. Notice in verse number 6 once again. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. Amen. Thank you. Why is it so hard for people to say amen sometimes in worship? Why, why is that? Some of you have been around our, our black brethren before, our black brothers and sisters, and you know I'm not trying to be any kind of way, but just stating the truth. If you've ever been to a congregation that's predominantly black, maybe before and visited with some of our black brothers and sisters, you know what happens, right? They start talking back to you. They say things like, that's right, preach your brother, amen. I heard a preacher tell one time that he had been to a place where there were a few black brothers and sisters there, and he said, as I started preaching, they started talking back to me. He said, and when they did, I preached better and I preached with more enthusiasm and I preached longer and now it occurs to me why some of you white people don't want to say amen sometimes in worship right 
Somebody sometime, every once in a while, ought to say amen in worship. Because the people are not just sitting there like knots on logs. They're not just sitting there trying to avoid the next few minutes so that they can get up. They're not just thinking about lunch, but the people are responding. And it says here that they are speaking. They're speaking back to the man as he is reading from the Word of God. But notice not only that here, but we see as well in verse number 9 that they are weeping. It says at the end, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Have you ever cried at the reading of the Word of God? I'm not being facetious. I'm not. I'm not asking if you've openly wept here in the middle of our services, but have you ever had your emotions moved by hearing the Word of God read in our midst? The people here are weeping. And Nehemiah corrects them in verse number 10. Notice when he says to them, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah even corrects them and he says... You don't have to cry. Isn't it interesting that people sometimes want to avoid coming to church services to worship? Because they say, I don't want to be told over and over again about my sin. I don't want the preacher to parade my sins out in front of me and for me to have to think about these things. For it to be pointed out to me just how awful I am sometimes. Friends, those are sorry excuses for not coming to hear the word of the Lord. We must follow in the footsteps of these Jews here in this moment when they heard the law of the Lord read, but then they weep when they realize their sinfulness. And then Nehemiah has the chance to say to them, but it's not over. It's not over for this is not, your failure is not the end of your story. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul famously says something very similar. Do you remember there when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what some people would say then is by that attitude, Well, you know what, Paul? You're right. I'm just a sinner. And as a sinner, I don't need the preacher to tell me over and over again how sinful I am. Paul, you're right. I've fallen. I fall short of the glory of God, and I don't want to hear it. But do you remember what else Paul says there? It's the same thing that Ezra and Nehemiah say to people. You are a sinner. But you are also justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It isn't over. God should be your strength. In fact, there is an amazing chain of life, if you will, here in this moment. Notice the chain of life here. Your strength for life comes from the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord comes from reading the word of God. That should be the chain of life. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you should sorrow over that in a sense. But you should turn your sorrow to joy that is found in the Lord. And that joy of the Lord is found in reading His Word. That's what the people have here as they weep. Again, they don't just sit like knots on a log. They don't just wait for it to get over. They're not thinking about everything else going on in their life. But the people of God are responding. They're both speaking out from time to time. And they're also weeping because they are moved because they are standing at attention and they are listening and all these things that we've mentioned already what we need in america and maybe across the world and maybe even here in our own congregation is a revival of sorts psalm 85 and verse number six the psalmist says again will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you 
A revival will come when we read the Word of God, when we have respect for the name of God, and when the people of God respond to the reading of that Word. Can I give you one last thing here about the, what takes place here in this particular text? Did you know that restoration or revival has no time limit? It doesn't. What are they reading? As they stand there before the gate, as Ezra is raised up on this platform, and the people stand attentive and listen and say amen, and they weep, they've read the word of the Lord. As we began, we said, we pointed out the fact that when they hear the word of God, then they go back and correct some of the things that they've been doing wrong, such as not celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. But did you know that there is not a time limit on restoration or revival? It had been over 900 years since they had received the word of God. It had been over 900 years since the law had been given. But here's what happened. They listened to that same law and they kept it. They didn't adjust it for time. They didn't change it for culture. They didn't adjust it for geography. They listened, they respected, and they responded to the Word of God. We're thankful for the Word of the Lord and for the opportunity that it has to have, have an effect in our lives today. We do not live under that old law, but we live under the new law, which is God's simple plan of salvation. As we think about needing a revival, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a child of God. You've never put on Christ in baptism. We'll be singing to encourage you in just a moment. You can see the plan of salvation here on the screen. As we usually emphasize, we would take time even this day to study with you. If you want to know more about what the Bible says that a person needs to do to be saved, to obey God's simple plan of salvation. We're about One of our elders will be coming forward here to the front to receive you if you'd like to come forward to the front and let us know about your desire to be baptized for the remission of your sins or to learn more about the church and what the Bible about the church and about baptism. If you're here this morning and you need a revival in the main way, in the way, we'll be singing to encourage that you would become a Christian of God, but you've wandered away from Him. You've lived a life that's not faithful. We read in God's Word of His second law of pardon. A person who becomes a Christian, has their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus in baptism, doesn't have to be baptized over and over and over again. You can confess your sins before God, repent of them before Him, and pray for forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to do just those things. To allow you to again walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 7. So again, in just a moment, one of our elders will be here at the front. That if you are a child of God and you've wandered away, you can come to the front if you would like to. And make your wishes known that we could pray with you and for you. Maybe you stand in need of a revival. Revival of coming back to God, placing respect on His name and in His Word, and living your life for Him. And we would love to assist you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.